This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Hello, Tree. How's it going? You know, you're looking healthy and healthier every day. So it looks good. Leaves look great. Little sun, little water. You're doing just fine. Well, have a nice day. See you tomorrow. So what was that all about? (laughs) You know, I want to welcome you to New Life. We're going to talk about healthy living today. And and look at the trees. The difference between the two. Now, this is kind of cut back to the bone. It's got some good words on it, but uh, somehow it doesn't look like it really believes all of those words. And uh, so we're going to take a look at our lives this morning. And uh, we've got to ask to say about healthy living, but before we get into that, it is the anniversary of this church. It's the 11th anniversary of this church. There you go. That's the real stuff. I want to tell you a funny story because 11 years ago today, it was the first day of the rainiest month in the history of Petaluma up to that point. And I can tell you on that Sunday morning, the wind was blowing uh, gusts of 30 to 40 miles an hour. The rain was coming down in sheets. It was in the mid-40s, and I was sitting in my office. Okay, it was a desk in my garage. (laughs) And I was trying not to get mad at God. I'm thinking, God, of all the days for us to open a church designed to reach people that don't normally go to church, even, you know, dyed-in-the-wool church-going folk will stay home on a day like this. No one's going to come. That, that was a tough morning. So uh, got ready, went to Sonoma Mountain School, a few hearty souls, braved the weather, and we carried in the PA system one piece at a time, speaker under one arm and a speaker stand under the other arm, and overhead projector in those days, and pieces of the drum set, and, and uh, set them all up, and five minutes before church was to begin. I'm looking around, and we have exactly three first-time guests. Now, you have to understand, we had a very, very limited budget. And when I talk about limited, I mean really limited. And we had spent $10,000 on the promotion of the grand opening Sunday of this church. I remember walking back to the sound booth, and there was a guy back there by the name of Dennis Bender, who now lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was so grieved in my heart, I said, Dennis... We've got to find a way to reach the people of this community. He said, what do you mean, Pastor? I said, there's nobody here. I said, Pastor, they'll come. I said, Dennis, are you good at math? <laughs> we spent $10,000 promoting this Sunday, and we have three new people here. That's $3,333.33 on every one of them. So you realize how soon we're going to be out of business? 
He said, I'll pastor, they'll come. Now see, Dennis had way more faith than I did. And when he said, oh, pastor, they'll come, the second time, there were two sets of double doors in that multipurpose room, one on either side of the, of the sound booth, and they banged open virtually instantaneously, and it was so loud it kind of scared me. And I looked, and what took place in the next five to ten minutes was amazing. 245 people streamed through those doors with the umbrellas turned inside out by the rain, and they were wet and soggy, and we had a great time together. And, you know, it should have been an indication that God was up to something special. And uh, so for those of you who are here for the first time this morning or, or relatively brand new to new life, I just want to say welcome aboard to what God has been doing for 11 years. And we are blessed that we get to be a part of it. And uh, I just pray this morning that uh, if this is your first time here and maybe you're passing through and it's your only time, I pray that this doesn't become a throwaway service for you where you can kind of check it off your list and say, well, I went to church on Sunday morning. That's good enough for me. That God has something he wants to work on in your life. And I pray that when you leave here this morning, you know exactly what that is. Because that's why all the rest of us have come. I look at this church, and it's kind of a teenage church. I know it's only 11, but I think of us as 13 anyway. And that is, you know, we're kind of through with the infant stage and the small child stage, and, and yet there's still a lot of work to be done. And I, I believe with all of my heart that the best days for this church are still in the future. We have our whole adult life to live as a church. And, and we still have ministries in the church that are not fully developed, just like teenagers are not quite fully developed in some areas. And as a church, every year that goes by, we, we seem to pick up one or two more that we're getting fully developed. Uh, and I bless God for that. So welcome aboard uh, this teenage church, and uh, we're just going to enjoy every step of the journey. Now, on the inside of your programs, inserted into your programs, you're going to find a half sheet of fill-in-the-blank notes. I'm going to encourage you to take that uh, half sheet of notes and uh, use the pencil that we provided for you. Fill out the, the blanks as we go along. And then at least once during the week, get that out and read through it again. You'll be amazed at what it brings back to your mind. And you'll also be amazed at how much more it helps you apply what we're going to talk about here for the next few minutes. We are in the beginning of a series of sermons called, and I can't remember what they're called. There it is, A Life Worth Living. <laughs> and, and the deal about a life worth living is this. In this book, God gives sort of an abbreviated instruction manual for life. It's how to enjoy life, but not just enjoy your life by playing your way through it because uh, that ends up to be futile in the end, but how to live life successfully so that as you walk through it, you not only enjoy it, but you feel like it's been worth the living. And it's a relatively short book. It'll take us about, uh, I think, seven weeks for us to get through it. And this morning, we're going to take a look at an overview of what that healthy living might look like. Because in the first 14 verses of this book, that's what it concentrates on. So would you join me in prayer? Father, 
I thank you for this group of people gathered here. I thank you for the Christians in that ancient town of Colossae that received this book or this letter. I thank you for the Apostle Paul, whom you instructed to write the letter. I thank you for every instruction that you put in the letter. And now, as we devote our attention to the reading of your word and to applying it into our lives, and as we look forward to the future of this church, it's our greatest prayer that we would be walking in your will, that we would be hearing your voice, and that we would be getting up from these chairs to go out and apply in our lives what you are teaching us so that we could truly experience the joy of a life worth living. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a look at what the Bible has to say. And I'm going to read you the first two verses. This letter is from Paul. And for those of you that the Bible is something new to, the Bible has in it what is commonly called 66 different books. But most of them would be about the length of a letter. And in fact, this is an actual letter from the Apostle Paul to the, to the Christians in the ancient town of Colossae, which I'll tell you about in a minute. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And from our brother Timothy, we are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God, our Father, give you grace and peace. Now, there's a lot just in that one little section, but I want to focus on just a couple of phrases out of that. First of all, let's take the word apostle, because you might not be familiar with that word unless you grew up in a church. But an apostle was someone who was personally trained by Jesus to be a leader at the beginning of the church. Jesus personally trained 12, and then later on the Apostle Paul, and he specifically trained them in how to start the church, how to establish churches, and how to grow them according to God's will. So that, that's a big heads up for me when I realized that this letter was written by someone who was personally trained by Jesus. Then I realized that what's in this letter are instructions that the Apostle Paul personally received from Jesus. That means I can bank on them. It means that they're true, and I can rely on them. Now, another phrase out of here is God our Father. That's a really important thing because God has many titles, and He has sort of many hats that He could wear. He is the King of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of heaven's army. He is the Almighty God. He's from everlasting to everlasting, and the titles and the phrases could go on and on and on. He is the most powerful of all beings. And this letter could have said, this is a letter from Paul to the Christians in Colossae, and Paul is an apostle of God the Almighty One, the judge of heaven and earth. And that would actually be true. But you see, of all of the titles that God has, the one that He chooses to use most often when He speaks to you and me is the title of Father. I want you to hear that. Because it gives a totally different context than if God chose to call Himself 
to refer to himself most often as judge or ruler or the almighty one or the all-knowing one or the all-seeing one. But God says to us, would you let me be your father and would you become my children? And it's in the context of that relationship that we best get to know and understand God. And it's in that context that you and I can best understand our purpose on this earth. We were not created so that God could judge us, although if we force Him to, He will. We were created to be His children. And so Paul reminds the people of Colossae right off the bat, that they should view God as their Father. Now, in this context that I'm going to read to you, the first 14 verses of this book, there are eight specific words that Paul refers to, descriptive words, about Christians or the Christian life. And, and I view them as sort of, well, there are eight ingredients to a healthy Christian life. And like any other recipe, if you leave out just one ingredient, does it sort of affect how the recipe tastes? Yeah, sure. And in fact, if you leave out an ingredient, it will not taste like you want it to taste, and it won't do for you what you want it to do for you. Same thing is true with your life. All eight of these, this is not a smorgasbord where you go, oh, I like that first one, but number four, not so big on that one. It's not about that. Okay, All eight of them, and if you leave one of them out, in the end, your life will leave you with an empty taste. Because you'll be missing something crucially important. And in the end, your life will leave you with a hollow feeling. It won't be what God ever intended for it to be. So here we get to the first descriptor of the Christian life, and it's the word holy. And certain parts of that word I think we grasp and other parts of it I'm sure that we don't fully grasp or maybe even accurately grasp because we tend to look at holy as what other things are. Correct? Most of us do. We tend to look at holy as something that, let's say, might be on the altar of a more traditional church. All those things up there on the altar are holy. But the Bible very clearly says that Christians are to be holy. And that when you get up in the morning, if you claim to be a Christian and you've given your life to Christ, the person you look at in the mirror, that person is to be a holy person. And for the purposes of this overview and all of these, I'm just going to touch on because they're all covered in much more detail later in the book. But just as an overview, I want you to understand that holy actually means two things. And the first is this. Holy means that this life is aimed in the right direction. Did you know that really the decision to be happy begins with the decision to devote your life to what you know to be good? I tell people all the time, it's impossible to do wrong and feel right. Now that sounds kind of like anybody could figure that out, right? But I'm amazed at how many of us think that happiness in life is found in doing what's wrong, especially if you can get by with it. And that somehow doing what's right is boring. Boy, I tell you what, that's just, that's just being deceived. That's not true. 
And so the decision to be happy really begins with a decision to say, I will devote my life to everything that I know to be good, and I will forsake and get out of my life everything that I know to be wrong. And, and so holy means that this life is aimed in the right direction. Not just some of it, all of it aimed in the right direction. The second thing that holy means is reserved for God's use. In other words, when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I need to realize that the person that I'm seeing in the mirror is someone that, that no longer belongs to me. That someone actually belongs to God, and God has entrusted that, that soul or that spirit or that being, that body, all of it together, God has entrusted to my stewardship, and it's my job to manage myself, my life, my time, my energy, my resources, my actual physical body. It's my job to manage it for the one who really owns it, and that's God, because I am holy. I've been reserved for His use. So that's the first word. A very, very important one. Now let's go on to the the next uh, three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5. Paul said, We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard about your faith in Christ Jesus, your love for all of God's people, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. Now, I don't know if you realized it or not, but, but that little trinity of words that I know you've often heard, faith, hope, and love, they are all right there, not in that order. First thing we heard about was faith, and then love, and then hope. All three of them are there. We're going to talk about them in a minute. Now, you have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. So now let's pull four words out of here that should describe our life. And the first word is the word faith. You know, one of the greatest challenges that you and I have in this life is distinguishing what God calls us to do from what our own desires and or fears might be. I'm continually amazed at how easy it is for me to assume that anything I like, God must. And anything I don't like, God must not like. So if I'm drawn to the particular way a person dresses or how they carry themselves, then I think, oh, that must be a blessing to God. And if I'm somewhat, let's say, repulsed by how a person looks or how they dress or how they carry themselves, then somehow God might be that way too. I was laughing and joking with one of our senior saints this morning who got a new haircut, and I was teasing him about bleaching the top of his hair and getting some spikes and getting an earring. Funny stuff. It'd be, it'd, it'd be hilarious. But I fully realize that there's a whole group of people, hopefully not too many in this audience, who would look at that and say, that would be offensive to God. Because somehow we can easily assume that what we like, God must like, and what we don't like, God must not like, and so forth. You know, the truth is, you and I have a huge job to do 
in learning to decipher between God's voice and, the, and our own inner voice of our own thoughts, feelings, desires, and fears. Now, friends, that's where faith comes in. Because if all you're going to do is follow your own desires and follow your own wishes and go with your own gut, and you're going to believe that God's gut is the same as your gut, and all you're going to do is follow whatever voices you hear on the inside of you, then you don't need faith at all. You're just walking in your own wisdom. Now, the longer I live, the more I realize this definition of faith. That faith is trusting God more than I trust my own desires or my own perspectives. That's huge. That's a big, big challenge. Because if you're like me, and I'm sure you are, oftentimes your inner voices scream at you, correct? Yeah, they don't want to go away. And God says, this is true, but my inner voices say, but I don't like that. I want this over here. And there's this giant contest that goes on on the inside of me. And faith is learning to understand that I need to trust God and His His perspectives and His commands more than the things that might even seem right to me. Let me give you a couple of scriptures The first is this, trust in the Lord with, what's the next word? All your heart. And do not depend on your own understanding. Friend, I can tell you that you're going to pick up God's Word. You're going to pick up the Bible and you're going to read things in there. And the first time you read them, I can tell you what's going to come to your mind. That can't be right. All of us, I still get that once in a while. And I got to say, okay, God, I don't know how that works. That sure is the opposite of what I would think to be right and I would think to be true. But I can assure you that the longer I have lived, I keep checking those things off of lists. That's another one. That's another one I used to think was crazy, and now I know it's true. Because the longer I live, the more I realize that God is spot on on everything He says, even when I don't fully understand it. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way. That seems right to a man. You just think, it's got to be like this. And then, but what does it say? But in the end, it what? Oh, it couldn't be any more wrong. But it seems right. That's where faith comes in. It's following God when my nature wants to take me this way. But God's word takes me that way. So that's word number two. Word number three is this, love. Many, many sermons given about love, but I want you to understand this about love, and that's all I'm going to say to you this morning about love. But take a look at it. Love is the primary expression of selfless living. Well, God wants to remodel our definition of love. We tend to use love about things that we like. I love to do this. I love this person. I love this kind of food. I love the Steelers. Just want to see if you were listening. That's all, all right? We tend to, we tend to talk about love in the, in the most selfish context, even though we don't think it's selfish. But the bottom line is that, that God says, I want to call you to a love that's totally outside of self. I want to call you to love people 
who can give nothing to you in return and to whom you are not naturally drawn. Because when you can learn to love someone that on the surface you're not only not drawn to, you might even be repelled by, but when you can learn to look at that person and see in them that they were created in the image of God and created to be God's son or God's daughter, no matter how crusted over that image is, no matter how tarnished and dirty and filthy and stained and torn that image is, when you can look beyond all the stains and the tears and you see in there the image of God and you can learn to devote yourself to helping that person and caring for that person and lifting their spirits and making whatever sacrifice you can for them, now you are beginning to really love. Because the primary expression has to be love of any sort of selfless living. And that's what God calls us to. And that's why he, in fact, what did Jesus say? All of the commands in Scripture come from these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. And you know, in both cases, God wants it to be selfless love, not selfish love. Another word, number four, is the word hope. You know, researchers are beginning to understand that there's a huge connection between life and hope. And in fact, when someone is hospitalized or someone is sick and they realize that if that person ever gives up hope of living, it's not long before they what? They die. Because there's such a great connection between life and hope. And God calls us to a life of hope. And I want to challenge you with just three things about this hope this morning. And the first is this. Hope is what enables us to see people as they could be and not as they often are. I want to challenge you to do that this week. Instead of looking at people and analyzing them just as they are, I want you to look beyond what they are and see what they could be. And begin to pray for that. And begin to work toward that. And as God gives you opportunity, begin to call that forth out of them. It's a great way to live. Don't you think Jesus lived like that? Yeah, sure. He saw a woman who had been married five times and was now just shacking up with the guy. And what did he see in her? A pathetic human being, detestable to all that God created her to be? No. He called forth in her was good. And yes, he called her out of that lifestyle. But he saw what she could be. On and on. That's, that's our leader. That's what we've been called to be. The second thing that hope does is hope enables us to see life as it could be, not as it often is. I know that many of you, I was, I was praying for uh, many of you. In fact, every day now I pray not only for the people who are unemployed in this church, I pray for the people who are still employed. That God would keep you still employed. But every week now, I'm picking up prayer requests of people who have lost their job in the previous week. And I know it's really easy to look at life as it presently is 
and not be able to see beyond that, especially if you've been unemployed for a while. Or if there's some condition in your life that, that it just has been there for a while and you don't like it. Maybe you're battling some addiction in your life and you, and you tend to only see life as it is today and not as it could be as you move beyond addictive behavior. Well, God calls you to a life of hope and that hope would enable you to see life as it could be, not just as it presently is. And then last of all, hope enables us to see eternity as it will be, not just as the present often is. And that's the great thing about hope. It enables us to see beyond where we are today. So those are the words out of that passage. Now, let's take verses 6 through 8. Oh, I'm sorry, we have one more. The truth. It's also in verses 6 through 8, but it's, it's also here in verse 5. The truth. I want you to write this. There's a fill in the blank there. Here it is. Truth equals reality. Boy, that's a big struggle for people in this culture because we have been indoctrinated with the idea that all truth is relative. That truth is whatever you want to be true somehow will be true. Or whatever you choose to believe becomes true for you. Now, friend, that's just not true. I have wanted to be over six feet tall all the days of my life. At one point in my life, I chose to believe that would be true. What do you think? Should I still keep at it? It's probably not going to happen. Maybe in heaven. You see, reality is reality. And what you and I want to believe and what we choose to believe does not change reality. God doesn't sit in heaven and go, oh my goodness, that's what they want to believe. I better change reality for them. It just doesn't happen that way. And Now here's the sad part. If you build your life on what doesn't match with reality, in the end, your life will be wasted. Because what you chose to believe will fall away as what is untrue. And God says, I love you too much to allow you to live in the absence of truth. I'm going to reveal my truth to you. It's solid. It's firm. It never changes. Truth never changes. So God says, I'm going to lay it out for you so you can build your life on it. And you can, because I want you to know that what you're building your life on will never change. Now, friends, that's, you talk about security. That's just a great form of security when you build your life around what you know is true. And so Paul writes to them and says, for the Christian, you've got to build your life on what actually matches with reality. Now, let's read verses 6 through 8. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world it is bearing fruit everywhere by, I want you to underline these words, changing lives. Just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's fellow servant and he is helping us on your behalf. 
He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. Now, before I get into what I want to teach you about this, I want to, I want to say a couple of things. Number one, change lives. I had you underline that on purpose. Because if you would like to take everything that you know about church and wrap it up into a couple of words, those would be the words. That the church exists on the face of the earth to change lives. In this church, we have a mission statement that, that governs everything we do. It's straight from the Bible. It's based on Bible truths. And that is, we exist to connect people to God and others, to develop them as followers of Christ, and to move them into lifestyles of service. You know what that is? Are any of us born with those three things? No. Our lives have to be changed into those purposes. I remember before we ever had a first church service, sitting in our living room with, I think, eight or ten different people. I can't remember how many people were there. And we were actually choosing the name of the church that night that turned out to be New Life Christian Fellowship. And in that context, I was asked, how big do you think this church will get? And I said, I really don't know. That's never been a huge concern of mine. But the vision that God has given me is hundreds and, and, and maybe thousands someday. I don't know. I leave that up to him. It's just our job to do what he calls us to do. But I remember saying this. I can tell you this for sure. We could have a thousand people coming to church. But if I don't see changed lives, I will not be a happy pastor. You know why? Because then it's just a religious club. I have no desire to be the president of a religious club. I want to see people brought into authentic relationship with Christ because when you look face to face with Christ, your life will change for the better, for the good. Now, having said all that, let's take a look at this next word, and that's the word fruit. What I want to teach you in this is that fruit is the ultimate goal of a life worth living. What kind of a life would it be if it had no fruit? Would you want to live it? No, I wouldn't want to live it. You know, if, if I looked at my life and from a practical standpoint, it looked like that tree. No leaves and no fruit. I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want to live that life. I wouldn't look at that life and say that was a life well lived. But if I looked at my life and it looked like this, only there were oranges or whatever else hanging all over it or apples or whatever the case might be, then I would say, that's the kind of life I want to live. I want a life that actually produces fruit. And throughout the rest of this letter, Paul is going to be talking to them about the actual fruit that God's Word will bring in their life if they embrace it and live it out. And that's what I want to challenge you with. Just to look at your life and say, what's the fruit of my life? What's it accomplishing? Because fruit is the ultimate goal that God has for all of us. If we're not going to bear fruit, then the day we become Christians, God will just kill us and take us to heaven, right? Because we're not going to do anything down here. We might as well just go be with Him. But the deal is, we are here so that our lives can bless and influence and bear fruit in other people's lives. It's our purpose on this earth. Let's go to the next few verses. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of His will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then 
the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. There you have that concept again. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. By the way, this week, don't just go back and read through the notes. I want you to read through this passage. It's pretty rich, isn't it? There's so many things in there. God wants you to know Him better and better. Now this word guidance that I'm going to talk to you about is, is kind of, it's not specifically in that passage, but the, the concept is talked about. That God would give you a complete knowledge of His will. That you would understand what He wants better and better. Uh, guidance is uh, uh, such a great thing. You see, there's a whole group of Christians that live that, that don't actually ever tap into the real goodness of Christianity. I don't say this from a guilt standpoint. I don't say it from a judging or condemning standpoint. I just say it as a point of reality, okay? And that is there's a whole group of people that think that the essence of Christianity is to go to church as often as God would require, and to stay away from everything that God condemns. And if you stay away from all that God condemns, and you go to church often enough to please Him, you're in. It's, it's a sort of Christianity is what I do for God. Boy, that's never God's idea. God says Christianity is a partnership between you and me. It's not what you do for me. It's what you allow me to do in and through you. It's, it's, it's inviting God to come into our lives and to say, God, would you personally and individually guide me? That's so different from a list of do's and don'ts that are wrapped up somewhere in some ancient book. God didn't just throw down a rule book from heaven and say, read and do. The rules in there are good for everybody. No, what God wants to do is come into your life and give you what I call individual and personal direction. That's so important. It means that those of you who are out looking for jobs... That God hears your prayers individually. And that God will in your world personally interact with you and guide you to places where He knows He's going to be able to provide for you. You're not just an account number on heaven's record somewhere. There's not just some, what shall I say, screen up in heaven that comes in, urgent message from... Number 2305JQ9. Job needed. That's not how heaven works. You know, I heard a song this last week that was just so good for me to hear and remember again. And it was the song, He Knows My Name. Yeah. He sees each tear that falls. We have a God who's personally interactive. And yes, there are six billion people on the place of planet Earth. And you think what the guys did with the footballs is amazing? All right? 
you put God down and say, God, could you give me the name of every person? And God would say, let's start on East Washington Street. 101 East Washington. Five people living in the house. Name of the father, name of the mother, name of the kids. Oh yeah, and they have two pets too. Through the entire world. God could tell you not only their names, but their desires and their fears. He could tell you what they do for a living. He could tell you their struggles. He could tell you their victories. He could tell you the names of their kids and their grandkids and their cousins. He could tell you every event that's happened in their lives. It's that kind of God who says, I'm not really your judge. I'm your what? I'm your father. Guidance. Let's read the last section of this. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all endurance and the patience that you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. By the way, I didn't actually highlight the word joy, but do underline that. Because when you have a healthy life and you have a life worth living, you're going to be filled with joy. It doesn't mean that everything that happens in your life is funny. But it means you have this wonderful sense of joy, of living a life worth living. He goes on to say, He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people who live in the light. For He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. That last word is the word endurance. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning because I actually spent quite a bit of time on it last Sunday. And last Sunday we talked about the fact that every good decision that you make is going to be tested. And we talked about it being tested by your own nature and being tested by friends and family around you who are not on board with you doing that and being tested even by Satan himself sometimes who sets himself against everyone who decides to do what's right. Well, guess what? It didn't change this week. Those things are still true. And you will need endurance in this life. It's not all uphill. But rest assured, there will be times when you're going to feel like you're pushing a ball uphill. Because life has its uphills and its downhills. It's got them both. It's got its mountains and its valleys. And your decision to live a healthy life and your decision to follow the faith that God has given you and your decision to trust God even when your nature wants to go a different way and your decision to live in hope even when the situation might on the surface appear to be hopeless. All of those decisions, your decision to love someone that seems to be unloving and seems to be unlovely all of those decisions will get tested in life. And, and, and Paul writes, and God says, I want you to be strong so that you can have the faith and the love and the hope to endure. Now, you know what all of this means? Well, as you look down through those eight words, do they remind you at all of Jesus? 
They are kind of Jesus personified, aren't they? Of course. And they should remind you of Jesus' followers. I was visiting with someone just this last week, and they said to me, you know, I've just started coming to New Life, and I love the church. Everyone there is so nice. Well, first of all, I want to pass that on to you. Thank you for being nice. Okay? But secondly, I want you to know my response to them. I said, thank you for saying that, but they should be, they're Christians. Yeah. You see, in life, you and I have a wonderful, wonderful privilege. We have the privilege to be a blessing. Not just to receive blessings, we have a privilege to be a blessing. And so the closing commitment is this. I will choose to be a blessing for life. I want you to underline that and circle it. And this week, I want you to pray about that at least once. Those of you who come here all the time, I want you to pray about that every day. Just pray this simple prayer in all the rest that you pray. Pray this simple prayer. Lord, would you grant me the grace in this day to be a blessing to all that I encounter? I stood at the Orchard Supply Hardware store yesterday. And I I had bought um, a gas-powered hedge trimmer, took it home, and I had my patience severely tested just getting it started. (laughs) And when I finally got the thing to go, it ran for about three minutes and it died, and I did what every wise guy does. I gave it to my son-in-law and said, here, you use this. <laughs> and he pulled and jerked on that thing for a while, and it ran for about three minutes on him and it died. I said, okay, I've had it. I'm taking that thing back and I'm going to get the model up. I just don't trust that model anymore. So I took it, I put it back in the box, I went to, to, to Osh, and, uh, and I went to the counter and said to the lady, you know, I just bought this in here about an hour and a half ago, and I'm just not happy with it, and it's very hard to start, and it dies after about three minutes, and it's just, it's just not fun to work with. And, and she said, well, what do you want to do? You want to try another one? I said, actually, I'd like to go get the model up from this one that, that's more of a professional model. I think it'll be... I'll be a happier camper. It's just fine. She says, I'll give you your money back. And so she rang it all up. She counted out the money to me. And I took the money and I put it in my pocket. And I went back to where the gas-powered hedge trimmers were. And I bought an Echo Pro hedge trimmer. (laughs) It was wonderful. It started on the first or second pull. And it didn't slow down for anything. It was great. I did what a smart guy does. I gave it to my son-in-law and said, here, have fun. (laughs) and Eris had a great time with it. But here's what I want you to see. I went to the counter to pay for it, and I had asked the lady, I said, you know, that first one I bought, I used up my 15% off coupon. Could I get 15% off on the next one I'm going to buy? And she said, oh, yeah, sure. But she forgot to give me a coupon, and so when I went up to the cash register, I thought, I better go back to the customer service counter and get one of those coupons so that I'm not trying to convince some cashier that, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to get that off. And so she was there, oh, yeah, I forgot. I, I meant to give you that. She says, well, here, just come right over here, and I'll check you out. So she went over to the cash register, and I went there, and she scanned the thing and, and told me how much it was. And I said, well, can I take the cash that I got and, and um, 
and give it to you and, and then put the rest on my debit card? She said, sure. So I started counting out the money that she had given me and it was actually $10 more than what she was supposed to have given me. And I said, you know, I think, I think maybe you gave me $10 too much a while ago. She goes, no, I counted it out very carefully for you. And I said, no, I saw that. But, you know, I just took that money and put it in my pocket, and I just now pulled it out, and it's, it's the only money I have in my pocket. And so if there's $10 here too much, I think that $10 belongs to you. And she goes, oh, my goodness. She says, that's all the money you brought? I said, yeah. And she goes, hmm. And there was a voice from somebody standing right here. And it said, well, if you can't trust him, who can you trust? And I turned, and it was one of our local policemen who knew that I was a chaplain. (laughs) You know, I was just so glad in that moment of time. I'm like anybody else. I could use an extra 10 bucks. I could have rationalized that away and given any sort of flippant excuse and taken my $10 and gone to Coldstone. <laughs> that would have been two sins. <laughs> Not nah, just teasing, all right. <laughs> I could have done that. But you know what? And she looked at me kind of funny when this guy said, well, if you can't trust him, who can you trust? And I looked at her, and she looked at me kind of funny, like, what's he saying? And I turned to him, and I said, you know, she doesn't have any idea what I do. And I I turned to her, and I said, I'm a pastor. And she goes, oh, thank you very much. You know what I realized? God gave me a wonderful opportunity to do what I'm challenging you to do. Be a blessing for life. I want you to listen. Get caught up as the worship team challenges us with that concept. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.